What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This episode of Waiting In is going to wade into the past, present, and future of genetic manipulation in humans. In the past, we have seen eugenics and nationalism go badly. We appear to be inevitably heading down a similar path today and into the future, except instead of pure eugenics or selective breeding, we're looking at gene editing in the form of new things like CRISPR, and the same tendencies to segregate ourselves based on race, culture, religion, have by no means gone away. You don't really hear a whole lot about the subject of human gene editing in the normal media channels, at least on any kind of recurring basis, but I think it is something that we should absolutely be having a public dialogue about. So first, I'll start by defining the key words in the title, nationalism, eugenics, and CRISPR. Nationalism is defined as loyalty or devotion to a nation, or a sense of national consciousness, exalting one nation above all others and placing primary emphasis on promotion of its culture and interests above all others. Eugenics is the study or belief that the human species and society can be improved by the selective breeding of desirable traits. CRISPR is an acronym. It stands for Clustered, Regularly Interspaced, Short Palindromic Repeats. I have no idea what that really means, I'm not a biology guy, but here's basically what it is, so far as I can tell in layman's terms, and what it is used for. It consists of two parts, a piece of RNA and an enzyme. It is then placed inside a cell nucleus, where the RNA targets a specific DNA sequence, a gene. It slices that DNA off, and when the host cell repairs itself, it can be made to use a new piece of engineered DNA, introducing the change. I hope that's accurate. If it's not, the point is, CRISPR is a tool that allows us to edit genes without rolling the dice the old-fashioned way and waiting to see what happens. So here's a story everyone has probably seen by now. In China, a real-life Dr. Wu, that's a joke by the way, Dr. Wu is the scientist in Jurassic Park, he claims to have altered the DNA of several embryos before implanting them into their mothers. He claims to have attempted to make the embryos more resistant to HIV infection. A pair of twin girls were born and are apparently healthy, and another pregnancy is confirmed. So on the surface, what's the big deal? If the girls are healthy and they are indeed more resistant to a devastating disease like HIV, where's the downside to this? But the scary question is where do we go from here? Dr. Wu's claims are disputed as of right now, they haven't been verified, but it doesn't really matter in my opinion because CRISPR is here to stay and will only improve with time. If you do a search for this story, you'll see stories about genuine concern for the science and the well-being of the affected people and whether or not the experiment is ethical, but there's no shortage of articles from big networks like BBC or CNN where the concern is on whether or not he was told to do it by some authority, like the Chinese government, or if some other authority, like a hospital or a university, permitted it. The latter is the direction this episode is going to go, 
because I think that's where the real philosophical questions are, but maybe not in the ways you think. Now, Dr. Wu, as I like to think of him, may be facing the death penalty in China, but it's curious to see that researchers, in the U.S. even, have come out and said they were aware of his thoughts and or plans and warned him against carrying it out, but they didn't necessarily get in his way. The truth is, gene editing is inevitable. In fact, I would go as far as to say it might be morally obligated if we're talking about eliminating diseases, birth defects, and just increasing the quality of life for people. So let's say these twin girls grow up to be normal people, except they really are unnaturally resistant to HIV. Is that a bad thing? But once that proverbial genie is out of the bottle, who is in control of performing the editing? Who decides what is desirable and what isn't? And regardless of any laws that might pass, how do different societies and cultures handle the new normal, let alone the new fringes that might arise? After all, you can't legislate away racism, and regardless of legal status, in many aspects, equality in society is in the eye of the beholder. If you want to go off the deep end, I've seen lots of documentaries on the future of space travel where they hypothesize that humanity won't ever truly become space travelers unless we engineer ourselves for space. They went as far as to have a brief animation of lizard-skinned humanoids going on lunar adventures. Quick, someone call Alex Jones. This isn't even something we have to just think about in terms of the future, either. We can look to the past. That's where eugenics comes in. Sir Francis Galton, a prominent English scientist in the 19th century, coined the term eugenics. Eugenics being the idea that humans could, or should, selectively breed in order to propagate certain genes and qualities above all others. Sir Galton believed that if we didn't make a conscious effort to improve, we would effectively revert towards the mean, and maybe even go backwards. And he's not the only one, and this thinking isn't even as outlandish as you might want to believe. Idiocracy is a movie that comes to mind. The entire premise of Idiocracy is not that far from what Galton hypothesized, that without an effort to tackle the problem head-on, humanity couldn't really move forward. In Idiocracy, it's generations of stupid people outpopulating the smart people until the smart people are basically extinct. The most familiar version of eugenics, though, and one you probably hear about constantly, especially in the West, is Nazi Germany and the idea of the master race. The Nazis called it racial hygiene and persecuted anyone who didn't conform to that idea. Mental disabilities or just arbitrary weak minds, deafness, homosexuals, it was a very broad net. And not unlike the movie Gattaca, in many cases, quote-unquote normal people even had to prove who they were and where their ancestry came from in Nazi Germany in order to be accepted in some regards. The Nazis sterilized hundreds of thousands of people and euthanized thousands more, and this is really before we even start talking about the actual Holocaust itself. Of course, it'd be dishonest to leave out the Japanese and their treatment of the other Asian peoples, particularly the Chinese. Even in America, FDR would round up a fair amount of near-suspected Japanese people. Now, there might be some other variable at work in some cases. For example, you could make the point that FDR was reacting to Pearl Harbor and wouldn't have otherwise done this. That's fair, but the point is, where is the boundary between genetic traits and politics? Don't even get me started on the Soviets and some of the weird things they're said to have done. You don't even need to talk about Lenin or Stalin to find things there. Soviet scientists were already busy seeing if they can make ape-man hybrids while Hitler was still in prison writing Mein Kampf. And how can you separate many of these occurrences from our common understanding of the word nationalism? People identifying with an area of land and a system of government with its own cultural customs and carrying that over into the actual physical identity of the people who live in that community. I would be remiss to forget about all the nationalism in World War I. 
when you hear the word nationalism, that has to come up. That war has probably done more to influence a lot of the national behaviors we still see to this day. But maybe 1800s scientific journals and 1930s Nazism isn't even far enough back. I would argue some variation of this has been a constant through human history. After all, what is trait-based discrimination, good or bad, but a masked form of genetic discrimination? There are countless real examples of this in history, from atrocities like the Holocaust to American slavery or the treatment of various native peoples worldwide. And you might remember genetics lectures as the boring parts of high school science class, like Gregor Mendel's flowers or Charles Darwin's finches on the Galapagos. What interests me the most today are the science fiction stories that attempt to tackle different parts of this dilemma and how science fiction, along with the past, could be a guide to the future. I think the science fiction stories can be particularly useful because we don't really have these hard biases baked into our understanding of the stories in the same way many people think about Nazis, Soviets, or even today's Dr. Wu in China. Several examples of explicitly useful sci-fi pop into my head. Now individually these stories in their complete form may have different themes and issues that they tackle, but they have quite a lot in common, and plenty of scenes we can use in this conversation. The 1997 movie Gattaca, which I already referred to, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, which was published in 1932, a smorgasbord of episodes of the classic Twilight Zone, pick up on many parts of the same conversation, directly and indirectly. And if you haven't seen the episodes Eye of the Beholder or The Obsolete Man, you should pause this and go watch them, because they really are great. And depending on how far you want to go down the rabbit hole of what constitutes gene editing in our current context, the clone troopers in Star Wars, or the wealthy billionaire running an underground cloning operation in Arnold Schwarzenegger's The Sixth Day. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to hero.co to shop today. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Gattaca tackles the issue head on. The protagonist, Vincent, is born the way you and I are, after being conceived in the back of a car. But at birth, he's predicted to die by the age of 30 from heart problems. Vincent's parents have another son in the modern acceptable way, with pure, predetermined genetic traits. Vincent's father is much more approving of this second perfect son. 
Vincent is never as good at anything as his younger brother Anton, the one who's genetically perfect. Vincent is shorter, weaker, poor eyesight, and he's not even allowed to go to school because the insurance policy at the school figures that there's an unacceptable likelihood that Vincent will have an incident of some kind that will incur an undue financial burden. But one day, Vincent manages to outswim his perfect brother, and even save his life in the process. This is a major theme in the movie, because it represents the payoff of willpower in the face of adversity, and hints that maybe it's something that can't be passed through genetics. And this serves as the reassuring memory for Vincent as we go throughout the movie. Vincent's entire life is as the underdog. This position constantly has him dreaming about the stars, which is really great storytelling. Vincent is told that he'll never make it, because it's been predetermined based on his genetics that he's either not good enough or that he's going to die young. Vincent belongs to a new peasant class, based solely on inferior genetics. Discrimination is technically illegal, but there's just too many ways for people to discriminate. But there is an underground of genetically superior people who for whatever reason can no longer function normally in society. These identities are sold on the black market in exchange for income from the people using that identity. This allows Vincent to become Jerome and pursue his dreams of space travel. Most of the movie is Vincent avoiding being discovered, until one day his brother of all people shows up and figures it out. We get a new scene of Vincent saving Anton, and Anton asking how it's possible that Vincent beat him. Vincent declares, because he never saved anything for the trip back to shore. In the Ender's Game novels, Ender's parents are rare in that they have three kids, which was only allowed because of the probability of one of the kids being a prodigy, and Ender as that special third child, is destined for the state at birth. Now that's more a classic eugenics than gene editing, but you still kind of see the same thing. Ender, because of his unique heritage, is basically predestined for something at birth. In a way, the choice is removed from him based on his genetics. The clone troopers in Star Wars are another example that comes to my mind. Now gene editing and cloning aren't quite the same thing, sure, but in the context of many of these stories, the clones are routinely some sort of altered form of the original. In Star Wars, they are an army of subservient humans who don't have a meaningful capacity to question orders, which makes them great soldiers, but they ultimately become the tool for one of the most famous villains of all time, Emperor Palpatine. Palpatine is important in our context because of the way he comes to power slowly over a period of time. Palpatine seems like a good guy at first, He's popular, and people in the galaxy seem to think he's onto something good. With the help of the ignorant, Jedi, Palpatine is able to raise an army that does not question him and ultimately uses it to claim the title of Emperor. Now this episode isn't a deep dive into the politics of Star Wars, though I would love that, and maybe someday I'll get to it, but it's incredibly difficult not to see Palpatine as a fictionalized caricature of someone like Adolf Hitler. Look at what actual Hitler accomplished. And now think about a maybe not so sci-fi future Hitler and an absolute top-down approach to genetics. Is there an incentive for a group in power to reinforce that power using the expanded power of the state? Arnold Schwarzenegger's The Sixth Day shows us a future on Earth where human cloning became possible but was quickly made illegal. But an eccentric zillionaire, Michael Drucker, with the help of a willing scientist happy to have his research funded, is skirting the rules. The movie opens with a quarterback, breaking his neck and getting paralyzed. The quarterback is simply killed, and a new clone introduced a day later in place of him, as if nothing happened. People become cattle to Drucker, 
Beyond that, he manipulates the genes and the clones of the people he controls, a politician for example, so that they have an expiration date. This mitigating the risk of the person rebelling against him, because they are dependent on him for their life, and if they do rebel, he just lets them die of his predetermined cause and he prints out a new replacement. It's the same elements at work. Genetic manipulation is a means of control. At one point, Schwarzenegger asking Drucker, who gets to decide who lives and who dies? Which is the million-dollar question. Are we capable of handling this power? But the question in our story is not so much of life and death, as it is what kind of life and what kind of death. With death, perhaps, even in the metaphorical sense, what might we lose if we pursue this path that seems increasingly inevitable? Aldous Huxley's Brave New World is a classic work of fiction. For decades, it has asked many of these same questions. In Brave New World, we see castes of people engineered as embryos and destined for certain roles in societies. Leaders are truly born, as is the consumer class, down to the unskilled labor class. The morals are the morals of the world state. The world state values peace, security, and stability. Sound familiar? And because of these values, human emotion and passion are largely eradicated from the population, and what remains is controlled by drugs. This brave new world, as it's called, lacks anything you might call character. John, one of the protagonists, was born the old-fashioned way on a savage reservation. John is a blank canvas, not too different from you and me, so when he finally gets to this brave new world he's always wanted to see, he is increasingly disgusted by it. With no art, culture, and all the things that make us stand apart, life was not worth living, if you called it life at all. Throughout the book, John is a curiosity to people in this brave new world. On several occasions, he debates with people in this new world about the nature of the world state and the passionless citizens within it. I don't think it's a coincidence that in so many stories, genetic manipulation is portrayed in a negative light. I think we are very much aware of the faults in our civilizations and in our own consciousness. So these stories reflect that and challenge us to think about what we are doing and what we might do when certain issues arise that don't have clear-cut answers. None of us really know what the future holds, but we do know that we have been confronted with this issue in different forms, both real and imaginary. One of the common themes throughout is this fear of a top-heavy approach, where you have a limited amount of people making all the decisions, and ultimately those decisions leading to the reinforcement of the position of power those people or institutions have. I think it's when decisions, or merely the decision-making, becomes institutionalized that it often becomes dangerous. That's not to say there should be no rules or conventions about behavior, but that we should constantly be on guard and have a deep understanding as to why some conventions might be valuable, like dressing well for a job interview, and that others, like stereotypes, when used wrongly, can go a long way towards baseless negative outcomes. Where am I going with this? Well, that's why I thought nationalism was an important thing to think about. Is there something about that idea that we've gotten wrong? To an extent, I think people will always seek to identify with something, some sort of tribe. That behavior's there. But is it possible that we could push it in a good direction? I'm going to present some ideas that might seem absurd, and maybe they are. But I did say this was about things that interest me, so you've been warned. What are the differences and similarities between the nationalism of, say, Adolf Hitler and the King of Wakanda in Black Panther. In both cases, they believe they have some thing, or an idea of value, that is worthy or needing of protection from outside forces. The difference is how they act on that belief. For Hitler, that meant war and domination of all the inferior peoples and their inferior systems. 
For Wakanda, that meant a massive shield, and protecting what they had without letting the belief in that thing drive them to stamp out or interfere with all the differences in the outside world. I realize maybe that's an oversimplification of both of those things, but I think in that example is somewhere where the answer lies. The decision-making process has to be pushed as close to the individual people as possible, which in all practicality probably involves many tribal or national identities that move people away from these massive administrative states. I don't necessarily know how we do that in the bureaucratic world of right now. Even in a perfect scenario, some groups will inevitably be more successful than others. But if one group desires a certain outcome, and there is no harm to others in the process, is that really a bad thing? Does nationalism have to be a dirty buzzword? No doubt this creates competition between groups, and group competition could lead to violence if we let it. Now, Black Panther and characters like Superman are not real, and powerful unifying figures that can carry a civilization on their backs like that seem to exist rarely if at all throughout human history. A fear of massive institutionalized power, I think, is why one of the first questions news media asked about the Dr. Wu story in China was if the Chinese government ordered it. Because that could be a signal that bad things might happen, and happen very soon. And in the West, the Chinese government is by no means viewed as a bastion of free expression. Which again, is at least partly genetic, and some might even argue wholly genetic. Again, I realize nationalism is a loaded word that is hard to separate from the very real problems it has and continues to create. I'm just suggesting that maybe we should rethink the word, and maybe there is something there that could be pushed in a positive direction. Maybe we just need a new name for it. Another loaded term that gets thrown around a lot today is identity politics, which, love it or hate it, is just more proof that identity is something people value on some level. But what is an identity worth in a world that might want to stamp it out and create some twisted version of quote-unquote level playing field? So think about the politician, or government, or society, or whatever, that you hate the most. Would you want them to have a say in any of this if you were stuck in one of those places where they're the majority in control? A few other things come to my mind. Malcolm X, and in particular his speech, The Ballot or the Bullet. It's long, it's political, and maybe a little dated, and it might not be your wheelhouse, but I think there's merit in the idea of a displaced or marginalized group seeking its own refuge on its own terms. Also in America are the yearly grumblings from Texas or even recently California about becoming truly independent. There's also the entire country of Taiwan, religious nationalism in Tibet and in parts of India, or you might recognize from the past couple of years, groups like the Yazidis in Syria or the Kurdish population in Syria and Turkey. There's the entire nation of Israel, Kosovo, Armenia, even some places in the West like Ireland and Scotland that had their own histories with this. Or how about the Brexit? I'd also be willing to guess your town at some point or another has had some sort of parade or an event based on identity. One thing all of these have in common is groups of human beings who at one point or another feel stuck in a place or system for one reason or another and wish things were different, but they struggle with the borders and control of often detached administrative states. Pleasing one group just causes a reaction from another. What happens if those same states or borders that people can be trapped in also become the decision makers in a genetic sense? And how much identity is really genetic? It seems like the genie's very nearly out of the bottle, 
and in a brand new way via technology like CRISPR that goes beyond the mere selective breeding or Nazi-style sterilization. The ability to potentially eliminate some diseases and do like-minded things that contribute to a better humanity ought to be viewed as blessings of the highest magnitude. But if misused, this could lead to versions of the same problems we see in our own history and in our own science fiction stories, but in much more insidious, is that a Star Wars reference? Fashion. I think before we make these decisions, we need to look forwards and backwards and evaluate who and what institutions are making the decisions. Or maybe the answer is that we should just try harder to keep the genie in the bottle. I don't know what the answers are, and maybe my thinking is all wrong, but the point is, we need to be having this conversation sooner rather than later. Well, that's it for this episode. I hope you guys found it interesting. See ya. The music used in this podcast in order of appearance was The Descent, Sneaky Snitch, Division, Gregorian Chant, and Drums of the Deep by Kevin McLeod. If you like lore and legends, consider supporting the show at buymeacoffee.com slash loreandlegends with a one-time gift that will cost less than a cup of coffee. You can also follow on Instagram, where my handle is at loreandlegends1, and on Twitter, at loreandlegends3. You can also subscribe to the Lore and Legends YouTube channel, which features video versions of all your favorite episodes. And of course, the official website, loreandlegends.net. Thanks for checking out Lauren Legends. See you next time. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.